Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. And this is the prize, the Sandman, masking you down and rendering you unconscious all over the radio waves. <laughs> You're still coming up with new ones every time. I wonder how long it'll be before I accidentally repeat one of those. It'll happen someday, I'm sure. It will, but hopefully we'll all be knocked out by the time it does. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> Well, once again, it is time for everybody's favorite, our roundup of monthly medical news. It's time for another Journal Club. Yay! Hey, hey, hey. Journal Club. On Doctor's now, Day of all days. It, it, well, it's, we're recording on Doctor's Day, but it will be oh. airing sometime after. So everybody, thank your doctor. We like a little appreciation now and again. And in fact, you could always thank us by becoming a Patreon patron or leaving us a rating or review on iTunes. Lots of ways. Love that segue. It's beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, in the last month, we've heard a lot of things in the news cycle. And I figured all of this began when we started hearing about alternative facts and pseudoscience. And in honor of maybe the craziness that's been going on in the political world, I figured this journal club, we would focus our stories on pseudo-pseudoscience. You know, medical discoveries that sound perhaps a little bit questionable, but are still evidence-based and warrant some more investigation. Sounds a lot like Hungry Hungry Hippos. Pseudo-pseudoscience? Hungry Hungry Hippos? (laughs) All right, so... The very first one, of course, one of the big political things that raised a lot of fuss was the fact of a picture showing something like 30 or 40 uh, old white men making decisions on female medical health. You mean that's not appropriate? Huh. (laughs) Well, we could argue the semantics of it later, but I figured it would be a perfect introduction to our first story for pseudo-pseudoscience as we introduce the BuzzFeed-worthy title of The Pap Smear, Groundbreaking, Life-Saving, and Obsolete. Uh So, of course, it's only fair for us, two male doctors, to be speaking about because pap tests are probably one of the most familiar and successful cancer screening tests ever invented. Whoa. All right, since the 1950s, Since the introduction of the pap smear in the 1950s, deaths from cervical cancer have fallen over 60%. But now a growing number of scientists are saying the pap may be past its prime. And of course named for Papa Nicolau, the Papa Nicolau smear. So what what can you tell me about pap smears, Ross? How much do you remember from your med school and, and residency days? I remember doing a few in my third year of medical school. That was... Gosh, almost 10 years ago. Yeah, I feel old now. Time flies. Doesn't it? But um, from what I remember, it wasn't a very technically difficult test at all. It was generally pretty quick. Uh, You could get results back pretty quickly, and it was a nice, easy screening test that could help discover some bad things 
that nobody might have known about otherwise. Yeah, so I'm certainly not going to insult half our listeners by assuming they don't know what a pap test is, and instead, I'm going to jump ahead to saying when the pap was invented, nobody knew what caused cervical cancer, right? It was just understood that we need to go looking there for any evidence of abnormal tissue or disease that might be suspicious and can then be followed up. That's really the basic concept behind a pap smear. Well, in the years since, we've come to understand that the great majority, if not all, of cervical cancer is caused by one particular virus, human papillomavirus, or HPV. And in fact, not only does it cause the great majority of cervical cancers, but vaccinating against this virus before somebody catches it can essentially obliterate your risk of ever getting cervical cancer. Yeah, I remember um, it was actually all those tens of years ago when we were in medical school that this vaccine actually just started coming out, actually. And now, like, it seems like everybody's getting it. It's really been a game changer. That's true. The HPV vaccine is recommended for both women and men. And if I remember my family medicine days, uh, they usually want you to receive it before you become sexually active. Or if you receive it after, to get it before age 21. So it's really a preventative measure and one that does a whole lot of prevention. Absolutely. So here's where we get into the controversy. Testing for HPV directly rather than testing, rather than doing a traditional pap smear. Traditional pap smears let you look at a whole bunch of different things. But if our main concern is ruling out cancer, just testing for HPV itself would be an upstream way and a lot less invasive for a large portion of the population to earlier detect any risk for cervical cancer, to save costs, and even open the door for at-home testing. You can imagine it might be difficult for a lady to give herself a pap smear, but taking a simple viral test could be done with an at-home kit. So that is a trial now to look at the idea of replacing the pap smear entirely. But a lot of physicians do feel that even if it is outdated, we probably shouldn't fix what isn't broken and that the HPV is maybe a little bit too quick and easy to completely replace this old test. So it's being examined in a randomized medical trial in one of the poorest regions of the U.S., which is Appalachia. And how are they doing this exactly? Well, they are providing at-home HPV testing kits to the people of Appalachia. And in Appalachian, Virginia, the state overall had some of the lowest rates of cervical cancer in the country. But women living in the Appalachian counties, the mountainous regions, are actually diagnosed with cervical cancer about 13 to 15% more than women elsewhere in the state and 5% more than women in the country. So they provide these women information about screening and a take-home kit with a long swab and instructions. They'll insert the swab like a tampon to collect vaginal and cervical cells, put that in a test tube, and then mail it to the lab. Simple, minimally invasive, done at home. Then, once technicians receive these cells, instead of looking for precancerous cells like we would in a pap test, you just look at the DNA for the specific HPV viruses that cause cancer. A positive test would mean you get another HPV test next year. 
not that you go straight to a colposcopy or a surgical procedure, and that's because about 90% of HPV infections clear on their own. Two positive tests would tell women to come into the clinic, and by doing this, they're hoping that this trial will help women overcome some key barriers that may keep people from being screened. Availability of clinics, including transportation to them, and cost of exams and treatment. You know, one question I have in mind when you uh, mention this is something that struck me earlier. So, we're saying this population had a very low incidence of HPV, but a high incidence of cervical cancer. I'm saying that the state itself had a low overall incidence of HPV, but women in this particular region had a higher cervical cancer compared to the rest of the state. Oh, I see. Okay. Makes sense. Of course, the traditional set of guidelines put forward by the Society for Gynecologic Oncology usually says pap smears start around age 21 and should be then done every three years if the results are normal. That's for you gentlemen out in the audience who may not be aware of this. If a pap is paired with an HPV test, then women can go five years in between testing. And the last option is usually that co-testing is usually recommended for women over 30. So again, our first pseudo-pseudoscience, do we need to have PAPs or can they be replaced with HPV? Sounds suspicious, might be true, only time and testing will tell. Um, One other thing I was thinking of, um, that kit sounds like it would work well for female patients, but why would they use the screen in men? I like that you asked that, and sadly, this study is really focusing on preventing in women. So they're still recommending just receiving the HPV vaccine in men, and it didn't really take too much of it into account, because obviously, we simply don't have vaginas to swab. Sure, absolutely. And most of the time, HPV tends to present, it may present as anal warts or a few other things. So uh, I'm sure you could still find something to stick somewhere if you're really that interested. Yeah, I'll uh, do some research on that. Let you know how. (laughs) (laughs) So let's move on to our next pseudo pseudoscience story, which is really fun to say. This one just hit the news in the last week or so, and has already been making a lot of excited murmurings and a bit of controversy. And of course, I'm talking about using a, a standard ingredient in orange juice and citrus to treat a severe sepsis. So, citrus for sepsis, or as I like to call it, the vitamin C protocol. Have you heard about this, Proz? I have, actually. This has been, um, like like you said, really making ripples um, over these last few weeks, and I was actually very surprised and interested. So, tell me what you know, and then I'll give you the actual protocol and what has been done so far. So, okay. Uh, for our listeners, in previous sessions, you may have heard a lot of talk about sepsis over all the episodes we've done. Being an uh, intensivist, this is something that when I'm in the intensive care unit, I actually see very frequently. Sepsis is basically, uh, a literal definition is a bacterial infection that's now become uh, invaded into the bloodstream. And it's a particularly, potentially deadly condition because these bacteria can then seed itself into any organ and then cause failure of all these organs, cause inflammation, cause a whole bunch of badness, ultimately leading to death. There are some instances in which sepsis has been treated fairly easily, others where we haven't been very successful. But um, our current mode of treatment of sepsis is what's called 
early goal-directed therapy. It's a whole big, long protocol. I won't get into all of it, but basically involving lots of cultures, fluids, antibiotics, and vasopressors to help support blood pressure. But the idea of there being a singular cure to sepsis has been essentially unheard of up until these last few weeks. There was a physician in Eastern Virginia who saw a patient um, who I believe had gotten into an advanced stage of septic shock who was extremely, extremely sick, but very unlikely to survive their condition. This doctor, really not knowing what else to do, started just give this patient a high dose of vitamin C and a high dose of steroids and uh, called it a day, expecting that the next day they'd be pronouncing the patient. What happened instead was that he found that this patient was doing considerably better, like showing very significant improvements. And I don't know the ultimate um, outcome, but from what I, I believe the patient ended up leaving the ICU alive and going home, is that right? Exactly. This patient he expected to die had a remarkable recovery, and he then began just treating people anecdotally. So without going into proper clinical trials, and he does want to study this in more detail, but he felt that the the risks associated with giving this vitamin C protocol and the or the risks associated with it were actually very very minimal, even if you know he is giving without the standard of or the weight of evidence behind him. And sometimes this is how discoveries in medicine get made. So they did a retrospective study as a result of this, and they took they compared two groups treated in the same ICU and the hospital before and after he began using this vitamin C protocol that he's now done on about maybe 30 or 40 patients. Before the treatment was available, 19 of 47 patients diagnosed with sepsis ended up dying from it. In contrast, they looked at a different group of 47 patients who had received his sepsis protocol, and none of them had died. Now, this is obviously going to be a biased study, and there needs to be a lot more work done. But the idea that a very, very cheap and simple treatment in addition with antibiotics because nobody's saying you still shouldn't give the standard treatments. This is an additional supplement to work into our existing protocols. Absolutely, absolutely. I think, in fact, if you look at his um, protocol, it does include antibiotic and a lot of the normal stuff that you do with sepsis, right? Right, and now this is pure vitamin C. He's not just pouring orange juice into the IV bag. He's taking a full gram and a half and giving it every six hours for four days or until the patient is well enough that they don't need the ICU. Oh. uh, I'd be very interested to see um, what this study ends up showing and what the end result ends up being. Well, and of course that's the controversy is because there have been no studies. He's just doing this and, you know, maybe people are improving. Maybe there's a placebo effect. Maybe the ones in this particular hospital are more prone to improve from this treatment and people around the country won't be. So there is a lot of, you know, studies that still have to be done. And it would be a mistake to to call this a true cure for sepsis. Sepsis is simply organ failure as a result of a serious infection. And there are many different kinds of infections. So Absolutely. there's still a lot of evidence-based 
research to be done. But this is going to be a very interesting story to follow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, interesting as it is, a lot of times when uh, people have uh, these very simple infections like a cold, the first thing they're told is to drink orange juice and take high quantities of vitamin C. So maybe there is something to it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, anytime I hear vitamin C, I always think, do you know a pirate's favorite letter? R. You'd think it'd be R, but tis the C. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been on a dumb joke kick all day long. So that's that's our second pseudo-pseudoscience vitamin C story, our pseudo-pseudoscience sepsis, citrus sepsis story. I give this story a C++. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's move on to our next one. Now, the next one is one that has been controversial for quite some time. Have you met anybody in your life, Praz, who kept to a gluten-free diet? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Oh, I've met uh, several people who have at least attempted a gluten-free diet and a few that have um, actually saw, seen it through. Go figure. Now, are any of these people that you've met, uh, are they suffering from celiac disease, the, the traditional genetic gluten intolerance? To my knowledge, very, very few, if any of them, are. Interesting. So, you know... There are people out there who have celiac disease, and we we have spoken to them in the past, and unfortunately, it will condemn them to a lifetime of avoiding any foods made with wheat flour or gluten. So that includes things like pasta, waffles, um, any kind of bread. But it's about 5% of people in in this particular study, 5% of people in the UK, but I would say anywhere from 5 to 8% of people in the U.S., uh, have some sort of celiac-based gluten sensitivity, if not outright celiac disease. Yes. There is, however, about another 8% of people and 10% in high socioeconomic groups who just say they avoid gluten as part of a healthier lifestyle. And, and here's where the dilemma comes in, because on the one hand, this is a pretty ridiculous claim. You know, avoiding gluten is not really beneficial if you don't have this disease. Gluten makes bread that, you know, loafy, not rubbery texture. It gives it that bounce. There's a lot of proteins that are non-toxic. Its elastic binding properties help so many of our treasured foods and give them their texture. Why would you avoid this for health? At the same time, for people who do suffer for celiac disease, the vast popularity of this gluten sensitivity movement has led to a greater degree of food choices for them. 
it's tough to to completely go out and try and bread shame people when those who do suffer from the disease have had their lives greatly improved by these additions. However, they've also had to deal with trying to explain to people, no, no, I do have a condition, not just a desire for a quote-unquote healthier lifestyle. Right. I mean, So the big issue now is that a study presented by the American Heart Association this week said there's not only is there no benefit to avoiding gluten if you do not have this condition, but there's actually some pretty significant downsides. And there is now an association, not a direct link, so the studies are still being done, but there is a high correlation between gluten-avoidant diets and risks of developing type 2 diabetes. So it was presented to the American Heart Association uh, a little bit earlier this week. And here's the problem with gluten-free diets. They tend to be considerably more expensive, lower in fiber, deficient in micronutrients like B12, folate, zinc, magnesium, selenium, calcium. You know, so much for healthy choices. Right, yeah. And at a meeting presented to the American Heart Association, it said low-gluten diets are associated with a higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes. And it's not really entirely understood why. They did look at the potential effect of cereal fiber, and people who had at least 20% gluten consumption ended up having a 10% lower risk over their lifetime by comparison. Over the course of the study, and this study looked at four and a half million person years of follow-up. So not four and a half million people, but given the amount of time that they followed people, it was 200,000 participants looked at over three long-term health studies based on food frequency questionnaires that they had to fill out every two to four years. The average person took in about 5.8 grams a day of gluten in terms of pasta, cereal, pizza, muffins, pretzels, and bread. And at the end of that study, they found that those who had at least, the, who were among the highest 20% of gluten consumption had a 13 to 15% lower risk of developing type 2 diabetes, whereas those in the lowest brackets of gluten consumption had the equivalent higher risk. So um, another problem with this is that often if you are avoiding for a gluten sensitivity, you may have other dietary issues that you are not investigating. You may not have a gluten sensitivity. You may be lactose intolerant. You may have other food allergies. And if you delay proper testing, you end up suffering much longer. So I have for many a year been very against some of these health fads at the same time appreciating the the controversies inherent. So I'm going to put out there, if you think that you have a gluten sensitivity or a true gluten disease, go and get tested for it. Don't start changing your diet on your own because now there are some real you know, health risks that may come up if people, shall we say, continue to self-diagnose or make uninformed lifestyle changes. Absolutely. And you have a great example of it as well. Um, another, I mean, it makes about as much sense as somebody who avoids um, all lactose products for the sake of eating healthier, even though lactose intolerance is a real condition, basically that's about as much. I have the worst mutant power ever. (laughs) Yeah, definitely don't hold out anything for your diets. Um, You know, you're losing more. Or at least, or at least take a closer look, um, because you know, although often demonized as empty carbs. 
The rice, potato, and tapioca starches used in gluten-free replacements really aren't terribly nutritious, and they also have to use high levels of fat and sugar to compensate for the structural properties in gluten. So, you know, really think about what you're putting into your body from all angles. I'm not saying you shouldn't have a healthy lifestyle. Just be sure that you're doing it for the right reasons. Exactly. Absolutely. Now, our, that, that brings us to the end of our third pseudo-pseudoscience story because, again, it is a correlation, not a causation, but it is a high enough correlation that it warrants further investigation. I am all over the map with my tongue twisters and rhyming today. Yeah. I mean, you could spit a rap right now. Like, I'm not nearly as good. Well, you know, I, I don't want to brag. I don't want to debate. But my swagger's genetic. I autosomal dominate. Just don't, I don't, and I'm not one to hate, but that was pretty great. <laughs> Let's move on to our final pseudo-pseudoscience story and talk about something that also has been in the news, although not quite as recently, and that, of course, is Zika, the Zika virus, which made a big splash earlier this year when it was found to be associated with birth defects and also easily transmissible due to the fact that it's carried by mosquitoes. Now, anytime a disease does start becoming epidemic or pandemic in nature, of course, the public is going to have a huge push to want to find vaccines for it. Absolutely. And we did this, and of course, this was done with Ebola, right? We Ebola started affecting, well, white people, and we began looking for a cure. And similarly with Zika, once it started affecting pregnant women, we said maybe we need to look into this and find a Zika vaccine. Well, researchers are eager to test promising vaccines against Zika. But there's a problem. We don't have anybody to test it on because right now there's no Zika outbreak. I know, right? It's a real it's a real dilemma because on one hand says Anthony Fauci director of the National Institute of Infectious Diseases on the one hand you don't want to see outbreaks of infection but on the other hand without testing your vaccines you'll never know if it works or it is a reliable treatment for the vaccine so all we actually do have a couple possible options that could be a Zika vaccine that would allow people once again to travel throughout South America, the Caribbean, and other temperate zones where Zika has been known to promulgate. However, before we can do that, we need there to be an epidemic. So scientists are really sitting there keeping their fingers crossed, hoping the disease appears bad enough to send them rushing in to save the day. What about um, areas in which the virus is endemic? Um, I'm assuming that even if it's not completely spread out like a fallen epidemic that there are still people getting sick from this somewhere no absolutely and here's the problem most of these vaccines being tested are in phase one clinical trials that means they've been tested for safety and approved for use in a small number of people basically to assess it's not going to kill you from giving you the vaccine but we don't know if it's functional and that's the testing that's going on now that helps them to refine and improve the vaccine and 
a recent publication of a review paper in the journal Immunity, these vaccines cover a wide variety of scientific techniques, things from inactivating the virus, manipulating the DNA, using a much weaker form, and all of them may have some degree of effectiveness. They've been proven safe for use in humans by themselves, but they haven't been proven effective. So now this Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases is launching another phase one trial to test a different method using proteins found in mosquito saliva. That's right, bug spit may be the real solution. And if successful, they mix the mosquito saliva and any viruses to trigger a human immune response. This could protect people against a number of mosquito-transmitted diseases that include Zika, Dengue, and Chikungunya, all three of which have now started working their way over to the United States through our coastlines. We do, however, need reports on the safety of some of the older vaccines, but there's no way to figure out which of these multiple methods will be the best one. So you have, shall we say, about four or five different options, but until there is a widespread outbreak where they can all be tested, we don't know which one is going to be the best or which one will say, well, it's only going to work on a small population or a small thing of this. So the, out, the initial outbreak in February of 2016 was declared a public health emergency, and vaccines that met the safety standard were rushed into phase one clinical trials to be able to investigate. And that's great, and this is exactly how things should work. But unfortunately, until we see another outbreak, there's no ability to look at the effectiveness and begin large-scale production, which means when an outbreak does appear, if we're not ready for it, everybody is caught with their collective pants down. You know, at times like this, I wonder if for the greater good, if the CDC, the CDC just took some of their Zika samples and just, like, induced an outbreak, gave people a public warning, and then just started injecting people. Who knows? I think most people distrust the government enough that outside of sci-fi movies, you're not going to see the CDC announcing, hey, we need volunteers for an epidemic. <laughs> By the way, and we're dropping Zika in Atlanta in T-minus 48 hours. Ah, Zika in Atlanta, huh? So here's the biggest complaint that they are com- that Fauci says. He's like, if we don't get a lot of infections this season in South America and Puerto Rico, which are the endemic areas that they're studying, it could take years to prove that the vaccine works and it could set the because the vaccine testing would be less reliable. So it has to go step by step through mice, monkeys, humans, large groups of humans. Whereas if there's an outbreak, they can take all these tests that were rushed into these approval trials and say, okay, let's see what's going to do it. What isn't? So it's a constant issue about where you put your resources and Signs do suggest the climate could be ripe again for Zika this year, but you have a whole bunch of scientists sitting there keeping their fingers crossed. Golly gee willikers, I sure hope people get sick so I get a chance to test my science. (laughs) So (laughs) that is the end of our fourth pseudo-pseudoscience story, which... (laughs) is still so fun to say, and I realize our episode this week is a little bit short. Praz, do you know any other good pseudo-pseudoscience that you want to bring to attention or we should study? Let me just start by saying I can think of things that we do in the hospital like every single day that 
really don't necessarily have any benefit to them, but I really thought to um, I really thought to um, have made a difference, you know. And you can probably think of a lot of things yourself as well, right, Josh? Oh yeah, I I always do lots of superstitious things in the hospital. I never say that it is a. I never use the Q word on a call night. Q word. Quiet, because oh, you know sure. what you know what will happen then. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, yeah. doctor yeah. doctors have just as many superstitions as athletes. We just are better at hiding them because we don't want to freak you out with our pseudo pseudoscience. Exactly, and we don't want to freak any patients out either. For those of you who may want to be. I mean, I'd be in a hospital sometime in the near future. Now, Praz, I believe it was recently just your birthday. That's right, it was. So, listeners, join me in, in wishing Praz a fantastically happy birthday. And I think for our Just the Tip this week, why don't you tell us how you celebrated? Okay, well, let's see. I didn't go anywhere exotic this time, like South America or New Zealand, which were some of the highlights of my actual traveling. However, I did um, go to the exotic land of Cleveland with my wife, which was relatively close to where we are. Spent the weekend, you know, just going around the city, eating at some nice places, having a few good drinks, visiting the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for the first time. That There's a lot of cool stuff over there. So if somebody's passing through Cleveland, is it worth visiting the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Oh, absolutely. You could even say it'll rock your world. Oh, that's just music to my ears. <laughs> I suppose we should roll with it, though. Yeah, I struck the right chords there, didn't I? <laughs> I hope you didn't get into any fender benders. <laughs> I did not, thankfully. <laughs> well, folks, that is the end of this week's Journal Club on pseudo-pseudoscience. Of course, we always encourage scientific responsibility. And if you have any other stories to submit to us, we'd love to hear them. Other than that, let's cue our outro, and we will see you next week. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Happy travels, everyone. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. You can reach us on Facebook, on Squarespace, on Twitter, on Patreon, anywhere podcasts are downloaded. We'd love to hear your reviews, your ratings, and we would love for you to support us spiritually, emotionally, and financially. Included in the show notes are a whole bunch of places you can do that. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me. (laughs) With with a lot of help from all my co-hosts and those of you who submit stories. Thank you very much. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys.